Hello, and welcome to the Hellboy Book Club. My name is John Salinas, and I'm here with... Aubrey Loveless. And I'm Danielle. Awesome, guys. Thanks again to our partners at Mignolaverse.com. Be sure to check them out. This week they have a really good article called Resurrection in the Mignolaverse, and they also have um, some information about the new Hellboy movie that's going to be coming out soon, so make sure to check them out. We're going to talk about some listener feedback. Thanks to Jan Nicholas Berzenkowicz for recommending us on Facebook and writing a little review for us. I really appreciate all the reviews, and I always ask every week if, you know, if you're enjoying the show, please write us a review on Facebook or iTunes. Pop Squad on Twitter and Hayden Clark, thanks for coming on board and for the kind words. Thanks to the Mignolaverse subreddit on Reddit for sharing us every week. We really appreciate that, Middenway. And like always, check out the Mike Mignola's Art Facebook page that has a lot of really great content. There's always a good discussion going on there and a lot of really great people. Yeah, it's a good little community. Regarding our last episode, we had some funny feedback from our pal Case Lajerwai. He said, I can also be quite a doofus, you ought to know, when reading the Mignola stories. I make quaint, abrupt noises and put the book down more than once for running around out of the blue like some gargling garagosh. (laughs) Or in line at the supermarket, I just blurt out, Harry Middleton, you are dead. (laughs) And so uh, we haven't got to that story yet, but um, that's really funny. And we also had uh, a really good email from Briny. I'm always surprised when we get emails. Yeah, it was really nice yeah. to get an email. It's like getting an actual letter. Well, and what oh, I really I, I mean, I, bet, I don't even get email regularly. And- <laughs> what, what I really enjoyed is he opened up his letter saying, "Hey, you damn guys!" <laughs> nice. I think I think we should just call hey, our letter segment guys. that. Yeah, yeah, that's the new letter segment. He said, "Hey, you damn guys! Just caught myself up with the show. Really appreciate what you've done so far, and looking forward to following this right the way through." This is my first time reading through the Mignolaverse, and I just wanted to share the moment that it clicked with me how deep this all goes. In the panel in Conqueror Worm, where Hellboy finds the wired heads and declares it the worst place on Earth. Do you yeah. remember that part? Uh, yeah. How could I forget that? Yeah. It was the um, worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> he, said, uh, he said, you guys wondered if this was maybe the skulls of shamans. Just to prove how all the details matter in these comics, those abbreviations are the names of the saints whose heads these belong to, and the number is the year of their death. Even deeper than that, though, the second head is that of Saint Dominic, patron saint of astronomers. Pretty appropriate for such a cosmic-focused story. Fantastic wee detail and mirrors that non-cartoony, aberrant side of the Nazis, reducing human life, even these supposedly sacred relics, and reducing them down to numbers and letters to further their goals. Anyhow, keep it up, guys. Briny. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, I thought that was Thanks. awesome, and I totally missed out on that. And well, so I within the story, they were talking about, oh, there used to be more minds on the planet right. who could yeah. communicate in this way with the cosmos and could were receptive to that and more sensitive to that. And since then, it's been lesser and lesser. And so they kind of gathered up all these quote-unquote minds right yeah that's interesting and so i had to go in there and see who all the all of them were so this is what i found number one is saint jerome patron saint of archaeologists two was saint dominic like briny said patron saint of astronomers the other ones are saint hugh of Cluny, patron saint against fever saint ambrose patron saint of beekeepers 
Edward the Confessor, patron saint of difficult marriages. I thought that was kind of oh, weird. Wow. Well, and then the the sixth one I couldn't find, and I so I actually emailed Briny back. I was like, "Hey, I, I what is the sixth one? I, I I can't find the death date and the that lines up with these letters." The last one is Philbert of Juyems, founded a monastery and gave his name to Philberts, a regional name for hazelnuts. Yeah. Guess the old Nazis were grasping at straws for the last one. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> Nazis. Well, so, that's, and that's another interesting thing. We're actually about to get into a story here that, um, well, not this one, but the one after. It is a double feature, of course. Yeah. Uh, and it has to do with a lot of Egyptian gods. Yeah. And goddesses and stuff like that. And so, you know, having thousands of patron saints and stuff, I don't know if what that sounds like to you but to me oh yeah it yeah. sounds a little bit like hey we have all these different gods and goddesses for various things like i lost my nickels or i need good luck on the way to the store or i need i have a my, difficult marriage my sheep are dying <laughs> this is the patron saint of protecting sheep this is the patron saint of uh snakes this is a pa- i mean what does that sound like to you it yeah, sounds like exactly, there were a yeah. lot of people with paganistic tendencies who were forced to be Christians, who didn't want to give up all their little various gods that they liked. And they were like, well, what about we have, what if we have St. Josephus? He's the saint of this thing I want to continue doing. Like, I don't know. That's kind of what it sounds like to me, but maybe I'm completely wrong. That's interesting. Isn't like uh, the patron saints, aren't they like sanctioned by the Catholic church? Yeah. You can't actually be a a patron saint unless the church says you can. Like hundreds of years later, you're just like, oh, that was Catherine. She's the patron saint of childbirth. She's I mean, I'm not disagreeing. Yeah, no, no. I just mean like, it's kind of like, like, do you really, like saints, is that... It, it it seems like it's the Catholic Church workaround to yeah, get to a more absolutely. polytheistic for religion. sure. That's what I'm saying. It's like, do you yeah. have a god, or do you have three gods, or do you have thousands of gods? It kind of sounds like you're worshiping a whole bunch of different people to me. Like, yeah, yeah. So what is sainthood? Yeah, sure, you know what I mean. It's a it's a kind of deification of a person, isn't right. it? Right. Yeah. Oh, they performed all these miracles. They must be kind of like a god, right? I don't know. It seems it always seemed kind of weird to me. It seemed very pagan to me. Yeah. Uh, no, that's definitely trying to adopt, and you you see that a lot yeah. with uh, Christian. Well, that's what Easter that, is. I yeah, mean, that's, exactly, you know what I mean? or Christmas whole, or any exactly, of that stuff. So, right? Anyway, but yeah, that's really interesting that it's all these different saints. I think that's really cool. Yeah. I never even would have gone into that and researched that. So no, yeah, thank and you for that. I totally email. missed that, and that's nobody totally else cool. nobody else chimed in on that. I never that, caught so, that. Yeah, that's it really was really good, and so I thought it was really interesting too that even. I'm purposefully going in looking for all this stuff yeah, and still these still things go unnoticed. It. There's so still was, more. Every that's time. actually super fascinating. I had no idea yeah. that those were all actual, like whatever saints and stuff. That's yeah. Cool. They line up with all the death dates and everything. So some feedback on some of the stories we talked about last week, the ghoul, Jerry Turnbull said that this is a fantastic story. Can't be a coincidence that the ghoul and the troll witch are the two stories that Mike still has the complete art for. Mm. So he's kept all the pages for those. Wow. He hasn't sold any of those pages for the troll witch or the ghoul. That's interesting. Yeah. Cool. Jen Nikla said, the ghoul is very, very good. It's interesting for me because this feels like the first story where Hellboy is the bad guy. Mm. I know he's beating up a guy that eats corpses, but the ghoul doesn't even fight back. Hellboy comes off as very cruel, and considering that the ghoul lived together with his wife and they seem to be happy together, this goes even darker. Yeah, he eats corpses, but he didn't kill them, so he's not as bad as Baba Yaga, who's a cannibal. That the ghoul quotes the poem also shows that he wants to die, because he knows what he's doing is bad, but he needs to feed to survive. Mm. So is he worse than a cannibal? I don't think so. 
Is it okay that he eats dead people? No. But as long as he didn't put themselves into the graves, he's not as bad as other monsters Hellboy has beaten up, maybe? It's a complex yarn for an eight-pager. I kind of agree with that. I mean, it, as long as we're talking about something super gross and weird. <laughs> like, dealing with the subject matter at hand. Thinking about it, is he worse than a cannibal? Because cannibals, you know, I mean, in, in our society, because we're not in a society. Let, let me just get this out of the way. There are certain <laughs> indigenous cultures in the planet that, et cetera, cannibalism is part of their culture and religion. Anyway, getting that out of the way, we, as in our society, the society that we live in, we're like, hey, cannibalism is fucked up. You can't right. kill someone in order to eat them, you know. And of course, I'm sure that there are some people listening, like, well, you kill other things, eat them, and but you know, you kill animals and eat them, and that's right. okay culturally. It's it's considered all right. So like, we consider eating other humans to be not okay, like specifically killing a person to eat them. But if this guy, like this guy is saying, if this guy's just going into a cemetery, right? Like, hey, these people are kind of already dead. They're already dead. It's like, yeah. and then if I eat them, it's not like I killed them so that I could eat them. I'm just kind of eating people that are already dead. It's like, I guess that's not as bad. Well, when I was in uh, high school many, 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 many years ago, <laughs> um, the movie Alive had just came out. Do you remember that? Oh, movie? I do remember I that. I never saw that. I never saw it either, but you know, the plane, I did see it. Yeah. The plane crashes in the mountains and a bunch of people die, so they're already dead, but they need to survive, so they start oh, eating. Yeah. The, um, well, that's a whole thing. Yeah. The, you know, I mean, so the teacher in the class, you know, she divided us up like, okay, would you eat human to, would you eat already dead? You didn't kill the human. Right. But you need to survive anyway. They're would already you, dead. Would you eat human to survive? And divided the class up on who would do it. I think it's kind of one of those things where you, yeah. you probably don't really know what you'd be capable of unless you're in that situation. It's below zero. It's freezing. You have no way to survive. I have no way to know if I would eat raw human flesh to survive. Maybe I would just let myself die. I have no right. idea. Maybe I would be so yeah. grossed out that I'd be like, eh, I'm already dead. I'd throw myself off a cliff. I have no idea. You know, and until you're actually in that situation. So, like, the ghoul, is it one of those things where he's like, hey, I can't help it. I, I got to eat these dead bodies right. kind of thing. And, like, he's still living with his wife the way that, that, that Jan Nicholas is telling us in this email, you know. Like, that is that is something to think about. I don't know why Hellboy reacted so violently towards someone who wasn't even responsible for these murders. Right, so, yeah. Or even if they were murders, these deaths, I guess I should say. Mm -hmm. So that is interesting that, that he reacted in that way. Like, oh, you're worse than a murderer or a cannibal. Like, is he, though? I guess, yeah. I guess yeah, like, really, is he? maybe, and I'm just trying to see, like, I'm trying to think like how they get the referral, sure. you know, and so maybe I'm thinking like the families of the people were like, oh, uh, their yeah. graves have been desecrated. Well, Somebody's ruining their, yeah. disrupting their and people whatever. Have, people have a know. lot of opinions about that. And yeah. That's, and I'm sure that's, you know, that's something that people are sensitive about. But as you and I have actually talked about several times, we're the kind of people who don't really care what happens to our bodies after we're right, dead we're yeah. in them anymore like we're not quote unquote there anymore i mean i want to be cremated and shot into space sure <laughs> and john you've talked about you're like well i guess if you can use my body for like some sort of science yeah that's useful you know that sort of thing so i think that we're kind of three people who are like i'm not there anymore who cares right like, right can, but a lot of people a lot of people are way. sensitive to that so that's interesting yeah, yeah. Um, we can do a lot of macabre conversations on this I mean, if you think about it, too, I mean, he was eating, like, dead people. He wasn't going out and killing people. So he's no, more like yeah. a, a lobster eating, yeah. like, scavenging on the oh, Scavenging yeah. or, yeah. yeah, like a vulture or something, mm -hmm. which are actually very tame yeah. birds. I guess, like, one of the weird parts is, uh, I guess he's got his, like, 
little utensils and he's got his little suitcase of stuff. He's like, oh, I'm going to go. I'm going to do my little. Well, I mean, if he's going to die, might as well be. (laughs) Might as well do it with some manners. Do it it out of style. I'm not saying it doesn't creep me out. It is a very creepy subject matter. But yeah, so that is an interesting thing to think about. And I guess with no other context, I mean, it's not like he eats dead people and then he goes off and like kills like. 20,000 people. We don't get any of that in the story. No. Yeah. Well, he so. just goes home and watches a puppet show with his wife. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very weird story in general. Hamlet done by the so. Muppets. <laughs> that would be pretty funny, actually. Some feedback on In the Chapel of Mala. Kevin Alford said, I'm surprised none of you mentioned Pickman's model regarding In the Chapel. I almost considered it to be a pastiche of that story. So I haven't read Pickman's model. Actually, I wasn't familiar with that. It's an H.P. Lovecraft story. Oh, yeah. And I kind of looked it up. I haven't read it. Oh my I, I I need to read it, but it's you know you're familiar totally, with this. I just completely forgot about it until this moment, until this very moment. This artist yeah. draws these horrific things, horrible. and he gets kicked out of university or whatever. And yeah. but it turns out like that stuff is real yes. or yeah. something like that. I used to love that story. Anyway, sad confession: I've actually never really read any Lovecraft. I've got that over here on the bookshelf. I've, oh. I, I've tried, but I've just been like. Meh. And, and I mean, I like reading about Lovecraft. Com- <laughs> common Lovecraft. disclaimer, that's probably good to say. Yes, Lovecraft had a lot of really horrible, just awful, blatant racism in a lot of his stories. And, you know, so I, you know, have those elements in there are really good and cool. And the stories that do are really bad. So he's a very weird, problematic yeah, man. Yeah, that is weird. Don't know really, you know, how to, else to say that. But that's yeah. so I know that a lot of people are going to be thinking about that while we're talking about that. A lot of these stories are so good. And it's just such a fucking weird yeah. Shame that you have to always be like, well, also, he was horrible because right. of racism, which is bad. But, you know, I don't know. Did you know that the original Oompa Loompas and the Willy Wonka book were not the little orange guys? They were actually little pygmy Africans. Ew, wow. gross. That's not good. That they, sucks. They actually got him to change it before the movie was even made. So Yeah. So by the time the movie came out, it was always like, the Yeah, Oompa let's Loompas. make them a fantastical so, thing. That yeah. still is like, uh, I guess there are pe- like people who are... Is it little people? Mm-hmm. Don't know. Who are little probably people. like, hey, that's still not cool. Oh, no, yeah. I don't know. I have no idea <laughs> yeah. how to navigate that sometimes, but I guess just throw it out there and let people decide for themselves yeah. how to approach that. Yeah. I have a lot of like collected works of Lovecraft kind of books and stuff and like Edgar Allan Poe and all that. Yeah. Whatever, and various, you know, and, and so it's 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 difficult sometimes to parse between like the art and the artist. You always have to kind of sure. walk that line of like you want to make it obvious that you're like, hey, I definitely don't think this is cool at all, all this racism shit, but I definitely do think that the stuff that does not include that. But then it's like, how do you separate that? Because right. he wrote all of it, so is he still the same guy? Like it's So it's very weird, but like, I don't know. It's it, I think it is, where I fall on that is it's cool to take that and then continue and go on. Yeah. Like it's cool to take elements that you appreciated in your own life and your own artistry and then use that to help you grow and learn and and be exposed to certain stories that are good and then move on and say well that's you know and move take that into the future with your own craft which i think is is valid and fine to do so but yeah so so that's kind of where i fall on that jen nikla said every time i read in the chapel of moloch i am always like is mike okay oh no it always read like one big self-depreciation for me especially when you read older interviews from mike back then still a fun yarn there are no bad hellboy stories but not one of my favorites Mm. 
Drew Campbell said that Goya is another artist that he discovered through Mignola, that he loves the Los Caprichos prints. Jerry Turnbull said, it's only a real boom when Hellboy shouts it, because there's that one where he... <laughs> and then a uh, random Hellboy on Twitter said that we should make a collage of all the times that he says it while doing it. So I actually went back and looked at this. It's only been twice. The very first one was oh, in Wolves of St. August, wow. and then the second one was in the chapel. So I'll keep that on the back burner. Nice. Case Lagerwise said that that page where Hellboy booms and he says it is one of his personal like best pages. Like uh, oh, okay. that would be his holy grail to own that page. Oh, and he wow, yeah. oh, wow. he linked the uh, he linked the pencils for it, and the boom is part of the pencils. Oh, cool! Oh, so I, it's I not put in there. One. It's not put in there by it's Clem Robbins. It's rare that the lettering is. Yeah. Yeah, and um, so Mignola draws those. Yeah, like, and and like Mignola draws those. And, and the page is really nice too. It has like that little goblin going down the hole and stuff like that too on that like without any of the lettering it just looks awesome just the black cool. and white pencils I, I did see that one that was like that one was pretty awesome and i love seeing like the pencils when you see the um, yeah it's really nice yeah. random hellboy on twitter said art detective hellboy should be the next hellboy in the bprd series <laughs> yes. this painting is haunted by demons ghosts worse cubism ah. <laughs> <laughs> yikes and, uh, and if you're on Twitter, Random Hellboy on Twitter is a great account to follow. Skeleton Crew also gave us numerous shout-outs for showing the Bishop Zrini silver button on online. I posted that. Some feedback on Macoma. And here we had another email from Brian Levy. He says, Macoma has always sort of broken my brain. I love it, but within the story, is it a true story of what happened before? Or is it more of a legend that foretells what's happening now? Both? What I'm saying is that it's fun to have this kind of ambiguity. It's great to have backstories explained, but it also makes me really happy where there's this much room for interpretation. So thank you for that email, Brian. Great feedback as always. Kevin Alford said, Macoma is my favorite short. Also, maybe the longest short. So yeah, it's a two-page. I think that is the, two the longest. The, yeah, two-issue. I think that is the yeah. longest short story we've read so far. Kevin Alford also said, Regarding my two favorite short stories, Macoma and Dr. Karp's Experiment, both are those Star Wars, the next generation, inner light type, transporting Hellboy into someone else's life in the span of a second. Then a short return to the present for a small fallout. I think those kinds of stories are the most interesting way to tell a story for me, as you can have both a familiar character and a completely new everything at the same time. I think Macoma is slightly better by way of being very funny. But both of them are incredible and different from the norm. Hellboy gets to fight crazy monsters, but also not really do anything at all. But in the end, he actually did at least something. It's kind of an Ouroboros thing. Mm. Jerry Turnbull said, Like John, I think Macoma has huge significance and meaning to the Hellboy story. It parallels Hellboy's life. And he also mentioned some other spoilery things that I'll refrain <laughs> from at this time. Jen Nikla said, Damn, Jerry, I wanted to say that. But yeah, Macoma is the Hellboy story. It summarizes all the archetypes Mike uses in his stories, the power-mad idiot that gets eaten by his greed, the dragon, Hellboy being a sarcastic smartass, and combines everything that is lovable about the series. It's silly, it's sad, but there's hope, and Hellboy does what he loves most, wandering and seeing the world. I think, I hope, this is how the series will end. With one little detail change, Hellboy survives. Somehow. I don't know. It would be nice if he could travel through the new to the new world. I think that's what he loves most. I also think the old woman is a stand-in for Hecate, and the water giant looks a bit like Abe to me. 
Is it just me or were there some sexual undertones when the woman turned off the light and laid with Hellboy? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I think so. they probably, oh, yeah. That's exactly what I thought. We Yeah, we didn't mention that, I don't think, on the last episode. I didn't think it was like something that you even had to mention. It's just kind of like, yeah. Yeah, that's they did it. They did it. <laughs> Little detail, in the German version, Hellboy says, shut up. Instead of quiet you. I don't know why, but I always found this funnier than in the original. Because he says shut up a lot in the yeah. series. So that's, yeah. Macoma is my favorite miniseries that isn't part of the main plot for the reasons above. Yes, I have a lot of favorites. I also read the original Macoma story a while ago in an English translation. Macoma in there was less of a savior, but more of a boxer that wanted to fight the strongest guys. I got a Dragon Ball vibe from it, and for me it was kind of funny reading how he just wants to have a good old brawl like a violent teenager. <laughs> Drew Campbell said, we were talking about Den, if that was from Heavy Metal, and he said that it is. Yeah. that, that That's the bald guy in Heavy Metal. Rack to Stora on Instagram and Ryan Rollinson on Facebook love the Corbin Booms. They gave some shout outs to the Corbin Booms on there. After we talked about the whole Din thing, I actually looked it up myself, and I was like, oh, he did write like a whole shitload of Din. <laughs> but one thing I did find interesting about uh, Corbin that I did not know was that he did the artwork for Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell album. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Good. Yeah, that's a great album cover, yeah. right? Oh, I love yeah. that album cover. Classic. Album, um, give or take. You know. <laughs> it's a good album. Doesn't it have that song that you like on it? Paradise. By the dashboard light. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely not in my top 10, but it's in, you know, it's somewhere on there. All right. Well, <laughs> enough meatloaf talk. We're going to talk about Double Feature of Evil. Double Feature of Evil was published as a single issue in November of 2010. The story is by Mignola, art by Richard Corbin, colors by Dave Stewart, and letters by Clem Robbins. So this story, it has an interesting frame setting. Do you want to talk a little bit about this kind of frame setting you know what I'm talking about? We open on this desolate theater. We see one of the few cars in the Mignola-verse that we, we yeah. haven't seen a lot of cars. Here's one here. And we see the marquee on the theater. It says Unilux Cinema. And if you look really closely at the marquee, it has some letters missing, but it says Double Feature, Sullivan's Reward, and House of Sobek, which are the stories that we're going to read. I did notice that. That was pretty cool. <laughs> And I really like all the sound effects here. It really adds to the to the setting. Yeah, there's a bunch of like gross dead people in the audience, right? Yeah, yeah, we're going to we'll get to that. But first I want to talk a little bit about the lobby. It's strewn with popcorn and trash and we see movie posters. Oh man, I love these movie posters. Yeah. Wow, uh, uh, when I worked at uh, when I worked at the movie theater years ago, we had like giant movie poster things and so just seeing this and then these are pretty accurate representations of those posters yeah, i'm sure it was fun to draw oh yeah no these are actual representations of the actual real posters i looked all these up we see 1931's dracula starring bella lugosi 1941's the wolfman starring lon cheney jr 1931's frankenstein starring boris karloff 1942's cat people starring simone simon 1935's bride of frankenstein starring boris karloff and elsa lanchester and 1944's The Mummy's Ghost, also starring Lon Chaney Jr. The Mummy's Ghost. Yeah. That sounds like a, a Venture Brothers title. <laughs> <laughs> the Mummy's Ghost. I'm this big of a nerd. If you look at the publication of these posters and the year that this came out, this has been sitting here for like 66 years, this theater, right? Because it's all it looks like it's been abandoned for a while. In the theater, only eight seats are filled. 
And the film begins, and we see a black and white image of a diner. I like the little sound effect for the film, because uh, that's oh, something yeah. that, when I worked at the theater and you'd start the projector, it yeah. would make that kind of worrying yeah, sound, yeah. and I could just hear it in my head as I'm reading this, and I'm like, ooh. It sets it up really well. Yeah. I like that. And I, and I kind of like the opening. It feels kind of like a... Like a Tales from the Crypt kind yeah, of sure. creep show yeah, kind of thing. Sure. It's just like, here it is. Here's this little creepy thing. And it's just getting to the opening. And here's the story. Yeah. Yeah. And our first feature is called Sullivan's Reward. It's 1960 Kansas. And we are at Bill's Diner. Hellboy approaches Mr. Sullivan, who is eating breakfast at a booth. Sullivan asks Hellboy if he wants to eat. And Hellboy declines. You said on the phone you've been killing people, Hellboy, Hellboy says. I did, Sullivan says casually while eating. Hellboy asks why he called the BPRD and not the police. Because the police wouldn't understand, Sullivan says, it's not really me doing it, it's the house. And this panel of Sullivan just eating his breakfast while he's telling Hellboy this is just really, I don't know, Corbin just gives this guy a a, a creep factor just to begin with. (laughs) The waitress comes by to bring Hellboy coffee. I like this little interaction, like... She's just like coffee, hun. Like she's he, he's like a giant red demon, and she just treats you know. I mean, she's yeah. a she's a diner waitress. You yeah, know, she's seen it all. <laughs> nothing's gonna surprise her at this point. Yeah, and so Hellboy gets his coffee, and then he goes, "Okay," like he's like now he's ready to hear. I, I just like that little moment right yeah. there, that little bit of pacing. Sure. Sullivan tells Hellboy that he used to be an alcoholic, and he lost his entire life to the disease. And we see Sullivan in his homeless state. Then a man who looked like a lawyer approached him and gave him some legal papers, some money, and keys to a house, and simply said it was a gift. I don't like the sound of that, Hellboy says. What's interesting is that my craving for alcohol was suddenly gone. So I think this is this is an important part of the of, of the story, is you know, his his craving just goes away like automatically. He's homeless, he's sitting out there and Sure. Well it's yeah. it's replaced by another addiction, yeah. which is The guy got cleaned up and took a bus to the house from New Jersey to Kansas. I'm sure you understand. I felt like I had to accept the house, he says, which I thought was interesting. I mean, what's his other option? Just sitting on the street drinking? Yeah. Well, no, I think when he... I think when he says that, he means that he was under some sort of influence. Right, or compelled to. Yeah, yeah. When he got there, none of the locals knew much about the house except that no one had lived there. A family had stayed there shortly, and I like we get some Corbin versions of these mood shots that Mignola does. We see this right. like, um, well, I think, well, that's it seems to sort of like some sort of relief that's, yeah, you yeah, know, it's a little decoration, it's a little superfluous thing that you find in these like old houses. But I feel like the mood shots when Mike Mignola does them, it's very he illustrates these objects or animals or whatever it is as though they were had dialogue. Mm. but they don't you know right. obviously you're not right. going to show shot of a whatever, statue a talking. book or a statue and it's but it is framed in such a way you're looking at it head on or it's just it, it looks as though if it could talk it would kind of right. thing. and this sort of just seems like he's showing us parts of the house which is cool and they look creepy but yeah those he's it's his own little There's a version yeah. of the mood shot, which is interesting to see how they play out among different artists yeah. in these creepy stories. Uh, for me, when I was reading this, for some reason, I just all of a sudden was reminded of Supernatural because mm. they're from Kansas. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've never it, seen that. I've heard that it's good. Uh, you know, I've seen up to like season six. It's on like 15 or something. Oh, I, don't yeah, know. I, haven't, I haven't watched it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
Uh, but um, once once that kind of got in my head, all of a sudden, like I'm here in fucking Kansas, carry on my wayward son. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so Sullivan finds skeletal remains in one of the rooms, and then he hears the thumping of three gold coins falling down the stairs. And so he looks around. There's no one else in the house, and he tells Hellboy that he buried the skeleton in the backyard. So this I thought was kind of interesting. Like you find a skeleton and you just go and bury it. Like wouldn't you call the cops or sure. say, hey, you know, I yeah. found this fucked up thing in my house. That night he had strange dreams and in the morning his alcoholic craving had returned. And Corbin does a good job of conveying his miserable state. Well, I knew- he he he's putting these dots together like this is what I get in return right. for doing these deeds. Is I, you know what I mean? And yeah. He's kind of running parallel to the gold coins as the he calls it craving, but it's an addiction. Right. Well, he like says, word, yeah. "I knew what I had to do." Yeah, exactly. And so Sullivan lures a homeless woman into the house with booze, leads her into that room, and she screams after Sullivan slams the door, and two more gold coins come down the stairs. The craving was then gone. And Sullivan buried the woman's remains in the backyard. Sullivan tells Hellboy that he's been doing this for almost two years now. No shortage of people that won't be missed. Hellboy says, and for every victim the house pays you? Well, yes, says Sullivan, but it's not the money. It's important you understand that it's the house making me do it. Hmm. And we get this shot of the house. I love the, I feel like Corbin almost makes the house look skeletal. You know what I mean? Sure. Well, it's interesting that he says that the house is making him do it. It's like you're saying with um, it's not craving, it's addiction. And yeah. is he really just being addicted addicted to this kind of thing? And is it really justifying saying that it's a house and he's not taking responsibility for what he's doing? Well, that's, right. well, that's a, that's a, well, that's a whole other can of worms. With addiction, it really is a disease. It's actually scientifically proven that there that is a disease, and you can seek treatment for it. But the road uh, of to recovery, it's is fraught with perils and you're right. you're oh, in yeah. recovery I'm, on a permanent basis well i'm not trying to you know belittle yeah. anybody with addiction i'm not trying to belittle sure. addiction in and of itself but um sometimes people do make excuses to not take sure and that's a fi- addiction. absolutely and that's a <laughs> fine line it's one of those things where you know you people will regress and there there will be little pitfalls but as long as they kind of you know take responsibility that's mm-hmm. the key word of of like hey you know this is my plan i'm trying to follow this plan i'm trying to i have a you know a group of people around me to support me and all this stuff whereas there are some people who are like i don't have a problem i don't need any help and so Mm. he's like saying you have to understand like the house is compelling me to do it and like you know at first in the beginning of the story it seems like okay well he's at least seeking out somebody to help him with this like he's seeking out hellboy but then there's this undercurrent of creepiness like I just get the feeling there's going to be this weird twist. And of course there is like a yeah. weird twist. He's of course, you know, well, we haven't gotten that part in the story yet, but yeah, he's, he seems to be doing the same thing he's actually talking about doing mm-hmm. with Hellboy. I guess another thing I just thought of, it's this story takes place in what, 1960? Yeah. And addiction was looked upon completely different. Sure. Everybody's mindset was different. So. That's a good point. That is yeah. A good, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I just contradicted myself (laughs) but as far as like the house you get the idea well the artist here is drawing the house in this very imposing way this very imposing shot and then there's this like creepy guy now who's this fucking guy right hellboy sees a painting of a white-haired man with a beard and sullivan doesn't know who he is he's gotten it into his head that he's the man who built the house and whose money it is that falls down the stairs money that he got in a bad way sullivan leads hellboy up the stairs to the room and I love how Corbin conveys the darkness with the lamp. 
yeah. you know, like he does a really good job of lighting it with the, you know, the lamp is only giving off a little bit of light and the, the whole house is dark. This is also the page where I'm like, I think my suspicions have been confirmed. I know, this yeah. This guy is just luring Hellboy to this house. And yeah, he especially the way he's got his hand in his jacket yeah, right there. Oh yeah, and he asks Hellboy if he feels the lingering evil in the room, and Hellboy's like, "I don't feel it." <laughs> and then he pulls a gun on Hellboy, shoots him, and closes the door on him, apologizing as he does so. And Hellboy's just like, "Son of a." We get some fucking some. He's a <laughs> he's a bad bloke. He's a bad here. bloke. We hear this some fucked up he, shit. Hellboy hears that chanting voice and he sees this guy with his back turned to him. He's in a robe on the floor and he's within a circle with the blue candles around him and he's speaking this weird language and it's kind of similar to that Agdru Jihad sure, language yeah. that we've seen in the pit before. Yeah. Maybe he's chanting to Urshigal. Maybe. Hear me, I have been your loyal servant, but now my fatal hour is near at hand. Grant me powers beyond the grave that I should live forever. And then Hellboy's like, what the hell are you doing? And yeah. the guy just turns around and looks at him. I like that. And then the candles go out and he kind of disappears. And then Hellboy just says, oh, crap, as these two giant blue eyes and hands emerge from the darkness and kind of grab him. And then it cuts back to outside where Sullivan is. And Hellboy's screaming. I did it, Sullivan says. Master, you paid me for all those other shambling drunks and prostitutes, but what will you give me for him? I say the look on his face when he's saying that is just like uber creepy. Yeah. It's just like... So gross. Yeah. And this is really messed up. This giant mass of coins. It's almost like the size of like a giant safe. Yeah. Just comes thumping down the stairs and it just falls on Sullivan, splatting him on the ground. Like a fridge of coins. Yeah. <laughs> I love also I can like see it like kind of like shimmying down like yeah. come, like rocking back and forth down the stairs. And the way that it all kind of spills out at the end there. Yeah. The, After the it falls. The panel is interesting. I don't know. Like, get out of the way, dude. Yeah. <laughs> I'm no, I mean I'm obviously like that's kind of the that's what you get. That's right. The hubris being punished of the guy, you know, and that's yeah, but, the typical ending but, but it's get, like, out get out of the, the way. way. What are you doing? <laughs> I'm not rooting for him. I'm just saying, dumb. I mean, unless the coins like chase him around the block. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this one was a little. But he knows avoidable. that they're coming down the stairs. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. Whatever. But yeah. So that's that was a really interesting page. Yeah. That was an interesting page. Hellboy bursts out of the room, telling Sullivan that he better be running. But then he sees the hand sticking out of the mass of coins, and he's just like, "Oh." <laughs> Hellboy hears a voice. Get out of my house. Hellboy approaches the painting and hears again, get out, and he gets thrown across the room. Get out, the house says, and Corbin does a really good job of kind of showing us that it's coming from the floor. Yeah. Yeah. That was very illustrative of, of yeah, the, the movement, like the just kind of that that movement and all the stuff, the way that it's moving mm -hmm. is very, yeah. Uh, not to, you know, keep bringing up things that remind me of this, also, this part of the story reminded me of um, a... Dark Towers series. I want to say it was Book Wastelands. Mm. Uh, I haven't read that. Oh, it's when one of the main characters, he enters this really fucked up house and the house is trying to kill him, but he <laughs> needs to be in that house to be able to cross the door to join up with Roland in his What are some other houses that try to kill you? Um, Amityville? Yeah. Amityville Horror, that yeah. house. Poltergeist. The house on Haunted Hill. But it wasn't the house in Poltergeist. It was, there were actual poltergeists yeah. from the... You, you only move the headstones. <laughs> you didn't move the bodies. Uh, <laughs> There's a scene in Poster Guys 2 that still fucks me up. All right. Yeah. yeah. And so Hellboy, he says, oh, yeah. And he just starts breaking through all the floorboards. 
Oh yeah, he's just like scrambling to get them up. That's really gross. Yeah, and the reveal he, is disgusting. He reveals this like giant sort of grotesque body. Yeah, there's like no skin. There's no like skin. The house yeah. is the skin. And the way that it's posed, Ugh. I think it looks very Mignola like the yeah. way that that little where it's got like both of the hands like that and the knees are all buckled. Yeah, up. but it's it's really creepy. I hate it. Suffice to say, the house tells Hellboy that this doesn't concern you. Go away. And then Hellboy just grabs the floorboard and he jams it into the heart of that body that's underneath the house. And he hammers it in with right hand of doom, boom, number 15. I think that's the first one against a house. Yeah. <laughs> so I was going to ask, does that one count? Because he, but it does use the right hand. It's very telltale. Yeah. And it says boom. So yeah, yeah I, I think we got to count that one. Yeah, telltale heart. That's what I was trying to think of. It's very telltale heartish. Uh, the windows shatter and the house collapses in on itself. The portrait of the bearded man and coins fall with the debris. And Hellboy just emerges from the wreckage, and I like how he just the first the first thing he does is reach into his tattered pocket and pull out the cigarette and light it. My favorite line. There you go. Yeah, and as we end, we see the portrait ruined and some gold coins. Okay, so I gotta say, when he ripped up the floorboards and saw the um, the beating heart and the thing, I was I was just like, whoa! I wasn't expecting that, (laughs) and that just raises up. Like a billion more questions of like what the fuck? What is that? Was yeah, actually going I was on. thinking about that too. But then you know, Hellboy, he, he, I don't care what's going on. Wham! Yeah, he doesn't yeah. care. That's yeah. But I w- did want to talk about this a little bit, and we touched on it already with addiction. But like, okay, so Sullivan, his craving was just suddenly gone. So he never really did like get over it no you know what i mean like well you don't and that's the thing about addiction is it's 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 portrayed in a lot of fantastical ways and it's portrayed in a lot of villainous ways but it really is an actual disease and you're in recovery for your entire life right and he says you have to understand i felt like i had to take it and then aubrey you even said like well i guess preferable to just being homeless or whatever but that's really what he should have done probably is just like i'm not going to take this this is fishy I'm just going to try and work through this yeah, on my the, own. Whatever the moral yeah. of the story you know, kind of a thing. It's like, I guess it comes back yeah. to like that easy reward Taking or whatever. shortcuts, hubris. But, but I felt like Sullivan treated it like he got over his addiction right. and the house was putting it back on him. But he really didn't. No, yeah. You know what I mean? Anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting. I was yeah. thinking sure. about that. There's and, also like dark forces here that are, you know replacing his addiction to whatever alcohol right, with yeah. addiction to murdering people for gold coins yeah i guess yeah i don't know i, well, I guess mean, i was kind of confused about it well i mean it's whatever rewards the pleasure center of the brain sure um because i mean it's just that's yeah. part of what the addiction does mm-hmm. yeah yeah interesting good discussion on that one we return to the unilux theater and we see those eight patrons before we saw the back of their heads and now we see that they're dead bodies we see a museum on the screen and we go into our second feature the house of sobek well hold on before we get to the next feature do you think that they were always dead, or they were just waiting a long time for somebody to start the I mean, movie? I know, right? 66 years or something? <laughs> Sometimes it just feels like it takes forever. Come on, start the movie. <laughs> and we open up at Yale University in Massachusetts in 1960. The museum says the T.S. Amundsen Museum of Art, and I couldn't find a reference for any of these names. In the museum, we enter an Egyptian gallery. We're in Massachusetts, though, so you know what that means. What does it mean? Fucked up dark magic. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
In the Egyptian gallery, we hear a voice asking all these Egyptian gods to protect him from the snares of this evil woman. And we kind of, there's a lot going on in this scene as we, we kind yeah. of like are just thrown into the action. There's a man in an Egyptian garb. I guess his name is Donald and he appears to be controlling some mummies who have a woman captive and Hellboy is looking on like if he's just coming onto well, the scene. Well, he's... He's in a suit and tie, and then he's got some. Oh, anci- yeah. he's got some ancient Egyptian artifacts on him. I don't, yeah, say. No, I don't know right. if he's an Egyptian garb. Yeah, no, I, I didn't look at that as closely. It definitely looks like he raided the um, museum. Yeah, pieces. he just looks like kind of a office nerd who yeah. is like, I'm gonna put on all these, yeah, artifacts. Yeah. Hey, take it easy, professor. And he's not a professor. He works in the gift shop. In the, the gift woman shop. Says. There you, yeah, there you go. Liar, Donald says, I am Thesh, Pharaoh of Egypt. And Corbin really gives him a punchable looking face right there. He sure does. Thesh, also known as Tesh, is mentioned in the Palamur Stone as a pre-dynastic Egyptian king who ruled in Lower Egypt. As there is no other evidence of such ruler, he may be a mythical king preserved through oral tradition or may even be fictitious. And I looked up this Palermo stone as well, because that's the only evidence of him. And so the Palermo stone is one of the seven surviving fragments of the steel known as the Royal Anais of the Old Kingdom of Ancient Egypt. So it's kind of like um, this leftover piece of pre-dynastic Egypt. Hellboy grabs a scarab talisman from the broken display case. And he busts open the head of one of those mummies that has the woman freeing her. The mummies come at Hellboy, and he's just like, really? And he just smashes through both of them, and we get right hand of doom, boom, 16 and 17, as Donald runs off. The mummies, that's a pretty good trick for a guy who works in a gift shop, Hellboy says. He must have learned some things, the woman says, and she goes on to explain that Donald has always been strange, and after repeated date rejections, he snapped. I don't know if it's so much, it's like, you know, it's, he asked me out a whole bunch of times, which A, it says to me that he's just not listening to right. her when she's yeah. like, no, I'm not interested in going out with you. Just be like, oh, okay, cut your freaking losses. Right, exactly. <laughs> but then he's like, well, the last time I turned him down, he sort of snapped, which is a man who doesn't understand boundaries or right. like personhood of another person. Like, you're not allowed to turn me down for a date, which right. she is. Chill out, you know. Look at how I can get these mummies on you. Yeah. Doesn't that make you want to go out with me now? Turn some mummies on you. Come on, dude. Oh, but then also at the, be- at the beginning, he's calling her a faithless whore. Yeah, oh, yeah. Gross. He's just so like, gross. It, it's just so many thoughts I have. I was reading. Yeah, <laughs> man. Like, None of them good. Oh. For sure. Oh. Come on, man. Anyway. Yeah. So he runs into this. This is interesting to me. He's he's running into the. Uh, he's screaming Horus, and he's running into this temple, and she's explaining that it's. Not right. a temple of Horus, it's a temple of... Uh, of Sobek. Of Sobek, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but first of all, Horus is... He's he's one of the more significant Egyptian deities. There's a lot of different forms throughout the centuries that he kind of morphs into, which signifies that the you know Egyptians held really complex um, you know outlooks on mm-hmm. the multiple facets of reality. It's kind yes. of, you know, that sort of thing. So Horus kind of is the... The god of the sky, the, of like kingship, he represents, you know, the kind of that sort of uh, of the transformation of, that the sky goes through throughout the day. And the pharaoh actually was considered there are different pharaohs, obviously, throughout the different dynasties and stuff. But in general, Horus was uh, supposed to signify the pharaoh during life. And then Osiris was supposed to be signifying what oh, the pharaoh okay. was going through after death. And mm-hmm. so 
then later the pharaoh would be considered a manifestation of, of Ra. But anyway, and so Horus actually is represented by, you know, the you've, I'm sure you've seen the eye of Horus. The right eye is kind of representing like the sun and the, the left eye sort of represents the moon energy and all that sort of thing. And so this he was a very, very significant deity. Yeah. And then Sobek here that we're about to run into was uh, considered a really aggressive kind of like representative of pharaonic power. Yeah. And so he, he was invoked to deflect like harmful intention or invocation so he would it's kind of like warding magic designed to subvert misfortune doing stuff like knocking on wood for example you'd be like yeah well uh i hope i get this interview knock on wood whatever right, you'd right. be like oh man hope i get this interview Sobek willing whatever right, you know yeah, or yeah. like gee i hope i don't get cursed and my water isn't poisonous Sobek willing and so right. there would be all these you know um well actually and so it was you know protection against various hazards and 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 stuff like that but it would be various hazards associated with the nile oh okay. so he's represented by a nile crocodile okay that's what he's that got the head sense. of a crocodile yeah. his biggest cult center was actually crocodile city quote unquote mm. which in the day well, i guess would be like shed sheddet i'm not really sure how to pronounce that but in the greek you know, obviously, after a while, the Greek culture would start to come in there, and it was called Crocodileopolis, basically. <laughs> yeah, and so like they had a croc mascot that they would raise these crocodiles. Like oh, they was wow. they would revere crocodiles as being like really sacred and holy and stuff, much like the scarab was sacred and holy for this cycle of life, the symbol of like death and rebirth, regeneration, renew, like the nature of infinity, eternal resurrection and transformation. So the crocodile was like really yeah. significant to this specific cult and so the city would have like this mascot that they would adorn with jewels and gold a crocodile a crocodile That's yeah awesome. and so yeah and so <laughs> this was like this was like their little thing like, so they would they would worship a tamed sacred crocodile and he had like a name it was like the pet petsukos I don't, can't I can't pronounce any of these words. I'm really sorry. But they would, yeah, they would adorn him with like gold and jewels, and he lived in a special <laughs> pond in the temple, and wow, he was fed by the priests, and f visitors would come and bring him food offerings and all this stuff. And of course, you know, whenever that crocodile passed away, they would find another to kind of right. oh, he's been reincarnated in this other crocodile. Oh, okay. But they would mummify the crocodile that passed away. And they would like he would be like a special have a special mummy and they would offer him mummified crocodile eggs meant to emphasize like, you know, the, the cyclical nature wow. of the whatever. And so like they were raised on religious grounds as like the living incarnations of Sobek. And so, yeah, they were all they had these grand rituals of mummification and all this stuff. And so that was um, something that they, they even would notice that the baby crocodiles the, the crocodiles would hold baby crocodiles in their mouth to transport them, so they would put, like, baby mummified crocodiles in the Sobek's oh, mouth and all this okay. stuff. And so they would preserve not just the animal, but the animal's behavior, which would emphasize the kind of fierce protection that right. Sobek offered wow. to them. But it's this, it's this whole thing. There's all these different cultural things. And so the this woman actually brings up an interesting point, that the guy is running into the temple of this one god right, shouting Sobek. the name of another of Horus, yeah. trying to get protection from one god and so that's like i don't fucking like that yeah you know that's got that kind of thing of like hey what are you this is my temple what are you doing asking horus for help i'm the guy here and yeah so that's a, that was, exactly it's really interesting that they were 
territorial gods. They mm-hmm. were they had their own cult centers and their own cities and their own people that would worship them here or there and that they were offer protection in a specific area. So that's actually pretty accurate. Yeah. So that's anyway, awesome. I found all of that, you know, very fascinating. Yeah. And it was great to hear you with all the research and also struggling to pronounce things. Yeah. Well, no, I, I feel bad that I can't pronounce. Obviously, I'm just a just a white person. So I feel bad. I can't pronounce those words. So if you do know the ancient Egyptian uh, pronunciations for these words, I actually would be sincerely yeah. interested in knowing. You can go ahead and record some little clips of yourself saying them and send that to us. I would appreciate That'd that. That would be great. Although I'm not asking you to do work for me. You know, I'm not <laughs> trying to say you should do all the work and I shouldn't do any research, but that would be really cool. I love how Hellboy is like, Horus, is that the one with the bird head? Like, that? Yeah, he yeah I, know. I just <laughs> love that. Uh, either a peregrine falcon or then there was another falcon that was in that area. That a lanner falcon. Lanner falcon, there oh, it is. I couldn't think of the name. Thank you. The woman explains to Hellboy everything that Danielle just explained about the rivalry or the kind of, um, what did you say? You you put it so well. Well, they were territorial. Territorialness yeah. of, of these Egyptian gods. And Hellboy's like, I see what you're getting at. And so in the temple, Donald kneels in front of a Horus statue. And then he turns and he sees this crocodile god coming down on him. And Corbin does a really good job of, of this thing kind of emerging from the darkness. And then when he turns back into the, he's the statue again. Yeah, they hear really a crunch cool. and then he's a statue again, it's right? It's really cool. But the hand of Donald is kind of sticking out. I used to love stuff like that when I was a kid. I was, was like, is it a statue or is it a monster? That kind of stuff. The, the crocodile face also when he's turned back to stone also looks like he's kind of got a little smile yes. on his face. Yeah. He's all like, yeah. <laughs> he's like, I'm a... That crocodile grin. Mm-hmm. Looks like you were right, Hellboy says, and it's never a good idea to piss off a god with an alligator head. And it's a crocodile it's a head, crocodile. but he says the wrong <laughs> I love that. Uh, so that's, irreverent. That, that's okay. He calls all primates monkeys. So. Sure oh, that. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and then back in the Unilux Theater, one of the dead patrons claps. Ah. I like that. And that's a little, that's the ending for that. And there's, a, I don't know which version y'all have. Do y'all have the same version? Yeah. There's, I love this page by Mike Mignola here. Oh, yeah. So Beautiful. in the omnibus version at the end, it's got the Mignola variant. So there's a Corbin. The, the regular issue had a Corbin cover. And then this is Mignola's version of the cover. I actually really want this cover, but it's, it's I don't know if I want to spend 30 bucks because that's about what it goes for online because it's a variant. It's really good. But it has both versions of the story. Thank you. Aubrey's kind of pointing oh, out. the sketchbook. Oh, that looks good. On the sketchbook, cool. Mignola was going to make them two separate posters, posters yeah. for each story. Yeah. And so that's kind of what, what this is. And it's a great cover. I, I, I love great. the... Yeah. I really like it. It's got like a imagery from both stories but then hellboy is kind of just sitting in the front yes smoking you have even more than i have yeah here that's awesome yeah well if you're looking at the same one i made it's at the end it's at the end you have to go all the way to the sketchbook cool mignola says sullivan's reward owes a lot to a story by a belgian writer jean ray i can't remember the name of the story and where i read it but i'm pretty sure it was jean ray the last bit was inspired by hp lovecraft the shunned house from 1937 and so in the shunned house, a man suspects a house to be haunted, and after some events, he digs into the earthen floor of the cellar, turning up a fungus yellow ooze, and he mm-hmm. eventually uncovers a giant elbow. What? And so he pours a bunch of acid in there, and then faints, and then when he wakes up, 
It's just all ash. The elbow, it's, it's turned to ash. But it's kind of like there was a giant body under there or something. Weird. So, yeah. Tuh, creepy. And Mignola says, The House of Sobek comes from spending a lot of time with my daughter in the Egyptian wing of the New York Metropolitan Museum of nice. Art. Awesome. Reading that in, you know, with things going on today, that one guy, he just... What a dick. Ugh. Oh, yeah. I've definitely thought... I know exactly <laughs> what you're thinking of. Yeah, it is just... I think you put it very, very succinctly. When you when you talked about him earlier, yeah, and dude, just, like, just what a what a gross asshole. What? <laughs> I just wanted people are allowed to turn you down for stuff. Like just chill, move on, get find more things to fill out your day. Yeah, I, get I, a hobby. And and you know with everything that's been going on in the news lately, I just uh, been, I yeah. wanted to reach to the to the panel and punch the dude in the face. Yeah. <laughs> he does have a very punchable hey, I mean, face. He did get eaten by a crocodile god. So oh, there you go, justice. There you go. <laughs> Next, we're going to talk about The Sleeping in the Dead. The Sleeping in the Dead was published as a two-issue miniseries in December 2010 and February 2011. Story by Mignola, art by Scott Hampton, colors by Dave Stewart, and letters by Clem Robbins. So Dave Stewart did the colors for this, too? I didn't, yeah, I didn't he did. see that. Oh, there it is. Um, so we haven't seen this artist before. No, Scott Hampton. And I wasn't really familiar with his work. I looked him up, and he's mostly known for painted work. Interesting. So he he paints, and I think he does have some of his own titles that he's doing. Um, I don't have that information in front of me. He does but have a very painterly style. Maybe one of our listeners, if they know any good Scott Hampton work, sure. uh, please let us know. Well, this is a good one right here. Yeah, well, this is a great one. <laughs> We're already going to talk about it, though. Yeah. I was also reading in the back in the sketchbook on this version, he talked about how like he'll draw it in pencils first, and then he'll take that into Photoshop and start layering and adding layers and layers and layers. And yeah. Way, and yeah. you know, if anybody who's ever used Photoshop, which you know, yeah, I you, definitely you look over at your layer panel, just like some mm, million. Yeah. Layers. And it's just like looking at it. It's just like, oh, so gorgeous. You got to keep your layers in <laughs> check, man. I did look at some of that. He said a single panel can contain up to 20 or so layers. Too many layers. Yeah. It's too many. Disagree. <laughs> You can never have too many layers. You just have what you need. <laughs> we open on Beehive Inn in Suffolk, England, 1966. Hark, hark, the dogs go bark. The beggars are coming to town, some in rags, some in jags, and one in a velvet gown. Hark, hark, the dogs do bark is an English nursery rhyme. Its origins are uncertain, and researchers have attributed to various dates ranging from the late thousands. Is that what you would call Like, if it's just like a thousand? The late thousands. That's what it says here. Uh, I wonder if that's wrong, if that's a typo. It says, ranging from the late thousands to the early 1700s. Would you say the late thousands? I don't know. You know, I've never actually thought about it. Is, is that the... F- Anybody who knows, like, history numbering dates, uh, yeah, I don't please know. let us know what you really <laughs> call it. That doesn't sound right, but I guess it is right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, okay, so with the late... Okay, so the late... Th- yeah, okay. Like... The year 1099. It was the year 1099. And that'd be in the thousands, I guess, and then like the 600s. And you get into the 1100. It just just doesn't roll off the tongue, and I think that's why it it sounds weird. A ghostly woman comes in through the window to a sleeping man as we hear hark hark. Boo! Hellboy surprises the woman. Stay put, Ted, he says to the man, and he shoots the woman in the chest. So here we we He's see him do yeah, shot, we yeah. see him do a, a good job shooting Dead somebody. Center. Even though Ted was told to stay put, he pops up anyway with a stake. And he's knocked out of the way by the woman. Hellboy continues to shoot at her rapidly, and she crashes out through the window. You all right, Ted? Hellboy asks. 
And I love this action. It, it almost reminds me of something that you'd see in a movie where you, they just keep shooting them over and over. And then they mm-hmm. it, it's just very well, cinematic. You can, you can see her forming the bat wings as she's falling. Oh, yeah. That's great. Which I love that. Really interesting. Yeah, out of her gown. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was really cool. And she's got this really ethereal quality to her, which I, I love. Yeah. I actually did not spot that the first time around. Thank you. It's cool, yeah. Also, I do find it hilarious where Hellboy goes to shoot her and then he's like, Stay put, Ted, and Ted just like. Of course not. Yeah, yeah I know he like, didn't listen to him. Ted, get out of the way! <laughs> yeah. Damn it! And Hellboy jumps out of the window after her, telling Ted to make a phone call if he isn't back in an hour. He said the same thing on a Christmas Underground. Yeah. When he went into that underground crypt looking for that ghost woman. I guess woman. that's just like the standard. Yeah, he's like, if I'm not back, plan. call this number. That was exciting, Ted says, and Hellboy just kind of stares at him. There's a beat where he just kind of looks at him. Yeah. And then as Hellboy's chasing after the bat, he's like, yeah, exciting. Real exciting, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the bat kind of... Is struggling around. Yeah, the bat crashes into a tree branch and falls to the ground, becoming a woman. And Hellboy sees a man with a gun in the distance. Mister, stay away from that thing. It might not be dead yet. Hellboy checks on the bleeding woman. The cannon I usually use shoots right through these guys, but a smaller gun, the silver stays. So I was wondering, like, is that why he's such a bad shot? Because he's... He should be using a smaller gun. Right. But he's using this giant gun. Giant gun. With a little gun, he can aim and shoot correctly. Hey, maybe so. Yeah. In many, not all cases of vampire lore, vampires are harmed, hindered by silver. Yeah, they do not like that. The reasons vary. In ancient Greek mythology, the reason is because their first vampire was cursed by Artemis to be burnt by the touch of silver, Mm -hmm. since he was stealing her silver bow at the time. It's pretty good. Yeah. And uh, so we've seen now that there are certain demons that do not like iron. Yeah. There are certain demons who do not like silver. That's right. So it's almost an alchemical reaction that they're having here. So it kind of ties into that whole yeah. section of lore. Which I, I like, like that. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid, really into werewolves and like silver bullets always. Yeah. Werewolves or silver hurts the werewolf. And I was like... I can't remember who I was asking, and they were like, well, because silver is supposed to be a pure metal, and the okay. werewolf is, and I know this is not werewolf, is it, you know, but I extrapolated right. to all, you yeah. know, is, is a tainted being, and they can't stand the touch of pureness or something like that. I can't huh. remember I always, exactly. I, I always kind of attributed that sort of, like, mythology stuff to, like, well, like, silver is a pure, it's an element, but it's also, like, the effects of of various alchemy and you in these stories you see a lot of different alchemical sigils like Mignol will put right. a lot of that in there and so it's just kind of just another one of those mysterious whatever else. it's got a thousand different origin stories you right. never really yeah. know like yeah. well one village over here says it's this and this town over here will say it's because of this and you know it's it's almost uh geographical I would say I was well into my late teens before I ever heard somebody using silver against a vampire, and I was just like, my brain was not having it. I was like, right. nope, silver is werewolves, damn it. <laughs> right, and so you don't really extrapolate right. that to something yeah. that's outside of your wheelhouse, but someone else might have a, well, vampires don't like knots, and then over here on this, well, vampires don't like garlic, and then on the town over, it's like, actually, vampires are fine with this, it's just that they don't like this, and you have to invite them in, and you have to do it. Oh, so like, right. everyone's yeah. got their own little things for whatever kind of demon you're dealing with, which yeah. is really interesting. And then some yeah. people are like, actually... They glitter. Or whatever, yeah. Or, <laughs> or something like, you know, they'll say something like, actually, that's something that's made up to demonize people who just believe in certain oh, things. Right, and so, yeah. it's you know, you never really know, like, what... who. It depends on who's telling the story. I remember is, one time I heard somebody say, I was like, they were like, how do you kill a vampire? And then you were like, I can go uh, cross silver, blah, blah, blah. He goes, you can kill it however you want. 
you're making the story up yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Hellboy gets a gun pulled on him. Hey, what? And then he he blacks out after getting shot. I really like this panel. It's it's such a great shot. This is some this is a really good Hellboy expression. The expression on his face is yeah. so yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I was, was actually about to say the same thing. Yeah, too. I was actually gonna say in several panels we see Scott Hampton, he really gives us a up close view of Hellboy's of Hellboy, face. He's not yeah. afraid to like draw his face really up close and really show us like what he looks like. I really like that a lot. I really, really like this, yeah. And I and I like the look of surprise yeah. you can see in his eyes you can definitely tell he's like hey what yeah, yeah. this is a very good ex- expression it's a really good illustration of hellboy and um i also like how it just says blam blam there's a black panel and we know like we know he blacked out for a little bit now he's waking up later and he says well didn't see that coming and he looks over and the woman's gone the the vampire's gone so he's like oh great yeah, but going back to when he sees the man with the gun, you can see like how she's got the wings, mm-hmm. the bat wings she's in her gown. It's really back, cool. Yeah. yeah, I really like that effect. Hellboy follows the blood to a house, and Hampton does a great job of setting this all up. I love this. Yeah, the way that the... the and I love this panel where Hellboy's standing in the doorway. And he says, uh, you're not going to try and dig those bullets out, are you, pal? Too late, the man says, and we see that he's an old man. You have no idea what you've done, he tells Hellboy. The old man asks Hellboy how much he knows about vampires. And I don't mean those ragged creatures you have in the Americas. I I didn't really know too much about American vampires. So most uh, American lore vampires come from Native American or voodoo traditions. And they're called like the Soikuyant and the Lugaru. Right. The man's like, I mean, European vampires. Yeah, but and this I'm... is this has got a little air of like, oh, what? So indigenous vampires are, yeah, like. But I was also going to say, like, everyone knows about European vampires. Yeah. What are you talking about? What are you talking <laughs> about? Yeah, exactly. European, yeah, European vampires have got the spotlight for like all ever. Of yeah, everything. Like this is, you know, I don't know why an indigenous vampire would be like grosser than a European vampire. And he's just like, I would like to know more about these indigenous ones because I know all about Yeah, that seems ass. really interesting. <laughs> anyway, I uh, like this panel of Hellboy's face here too. It's it's Yeah, like, that's what I'm talking about. He kind yeah. of he kind of takes Mike Mignola's style and sort of makes it his own style. Yeah. I, I'm not trying to say it's that It's like he's, his own twist on it yeah i'm not trying to say that he's whatever trying to steal mike manuel style obviously that's not what i'm trying to say i'm just mean that it's a very you see shades of mike manuel here but then it's obviously his own style i don't know how to say it like the little divots in his face like it's very i was gonna point out the divots it literally looks kind of like that's like the um buckshot he got shot in the face yeah (laughs) oh yeah you're right it's kind of got that spread pattern of uh how it would look you know and then like the his He's got his sideburns there, and he's got his very—I don't know. It's just um, he—he—he's done—he's done a great job of blending these styles, yeah. which is really. I like that a lot. Yeah. The old man tells Hellboy that vampires haven't been reported since 1774, and he knows why. And Hellboy's like, "I'm listening." And I kind of looked a little bit of this up. We got a little Dur- Anne Rice-ness in here, though. Too, uh, yeah, with the we different do. families with of the, vampires yeah. and all of that. It so, completely reminded me of Vampire the Masquerade. Thank you. Oh, That's nice. exactly what I was <laughs> thinking of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. During this time in the 18th century, there was a frenzy of vampire sightings in southeastern Europe and Transylvania with frequent stakings and grave diggings taking place to identify and kill potential revenants. 
even government officials were compelled into the hunting and staking of vampires. There were two famous vampire cases, uh, which were the first to be ever officially recorded, involving the corpses of Pitar Blagojevic and Arnold Pajo from Serbia. Blagojevic was reported to have died at the age of 62, but allegedly returned after his death asking his son for food. When his son refused, he was found dead the following day. Blagojevic soon supposedly returned and attacked some neighbors who died from blood loss. Yeah, so there were some actual cases, and the two incidents were well documented. Government officials examined the bodies, wrote case reports, and published books throughout Europe. And the hysteria, which is commonly referred to as the 18th century vampire controversy, raged for a generation. The controversy only ceased in 1755 when Empress Maria Theresa of Austria sent her personal physician, Gerald van Sweden, to investigate the claims of vampire entities. And he concluded that vampires did not exist and the Empress passed laws prohibiting the opening of graves and desecration of bodies sounding the end to the vampire epidemics. Mm. So there is some historical fiction to his claim. The old man tells Hellboy that around this time, the vampires decided to hide themselves and wait sleeping in their graves until men had forgotten how to defend themselves against them and loose their army on an unsuspecting world. This kind of reminds me of Underworld a little bit. Yeah, oh, definitely. Wasn't that kind of the thing? Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Because, you know, I mean, I was really into Vampire the Masquerade in the 90s and all that. And, Hardly anybody I knew was, so I would spend more time reading the books sure. than actually playing the game. I knew, I, I, well, I knew of it. I never mm-hmm. actually participated in any kind of, you know, whatever, LARPing or any of that. But I, I, I knew yeah. of it, and I knew kind of, like, a little bit about it. So this kind of, yeah, it reminds me, like, mm-hmm. all the different vampire families or whatever come yeah. together yeah. making an agreement or something. And yeah. then, like, Underworld... Oh, oh, Underworld does something like that, too. Underworld yeah. does something like that, where they're like, oh, we're going to all go into hiding for a while, and they're going to forget about us, and it's going to be good, because then when we come back, it's gonna they won't be able to fight us. It's kind of right. a similar yeah. deal, right? Well, I remember when Underworld came out, I don't know if there was an actual case or something, but I do remember... At least people were saying that Underworld was ripping off Vampire the Masquerade. I have no idea. Oh, okay. And then, of course, also when I first heard of Vampire the Masquerade, I'm like, man, you guys are really kind of like getting your influence from uh, Anne Rice here. It's very Anne Rice. Yeah. (laughs) It's all, yeah. It's all, you know, it's all that. You know, it's all connected until they. I would love to see some Blade fans like crash like (laughs) well like crash like a like a masquerade thing just like come in and be like actually that would be awesome yeah anyway and over these panels we get some great hampton versions of the mignola statues and graveyards did you see those i thought they were very kind of mignola-esque i agree uh, yeah well the way that the statue is posed when he says um oh they're just they're waiting you know the statue's kind of in repose as though it's waiting yeah something that i feel like he would do yeah and I love this version of all the vampires taking over. It's a really oh, kind yeah, of breathtaking cool... scene. Yeah. Well, Mike Mignola does that too. He'll be like, oh, and then every time he's talking about the apocalypse, he'll show a vision of the apocalypse. Yeah, and it's just like this crazy panel. Which is kind of yeah. a similar, like, here's what it would look like if this were taking place, which Good I job. always enjoy. Yeah, yeah, I love that. There's a dead guy in the snow. It's yeah. It's very gross. For some reason, the scene also kind of reminds me of Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Uh, oh, yeah. No. But instead of it's birds, bats. we got bats. Yeah. <laughs> but just the way the people are like, oh, Yeah, gosh. yeah. <laughs> Hellboy asks the man how he knows all this, and the man explains his backstory and how a vampire visited him as a boy with his two sisters in 1882. He claimed to be a distant relative of them after their parents had died. 
But in the days that followed, the vampire made him his slave. He corrupted Kate, who was the vampire that Hellboy shot earlier, and Mary. And the man can't go on. He says they did things to her. Well, she was like a little girl. And yeah, they, like, she was a little Mary, yeah. yeah. This panel right here where you're showing his face right there, it's giving me a, definitely an Anthony Hopkins vibe right there. Oh, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> the man tells Hellboy that this old vampire and Kate tried to be cautious, only killing victims who wouldn't be missed. And they buried all those bodies in the graveyard who are now waiting to be called. Gross. Now the old vampire goes weeks without leaving his coffin, but in early hours, the man always hears the old vampire and Kate talking. What will happen tonight when he realizes Kate is not coming home to him? The old man fears that in a rage, the vampire will unleash all those sleeping vampires. Hellboy says, well, we just have to make sure he doesn't wake up. And the man says, it's night. He's already awake waiting for her. And so Hellboy's just like, let me worry about that. You don't know him. You don't know what he's capable of. And Hellboy's just like, trust me, I'm a professional. The man goes to lead Hellboy down to the vampire. And instead, he pulls a trap door switch, dropping Hellboy into the basement. And Hellboy falls amongst some coffins and bones. So this is like two stories in a row where guys are just like dropping him in basements or yeah. shutting doors. Oh on yeah, him that's all. right. Yeah, yeah. Tr- tricking him and, and the people that he's supposed to be helping. Yeah, yeah. Like, guys, stop fucking with Hellboy. He's there to help you. <laughs> <laughs> Hellboy falls amongst some coffins and bones, and an old timey telephone starts ringing. And Hellboy picks it up. I love this panel where he's just like, "Hello." Yeah. So those are like miniature coffins, right? Yeah, they're yeah. little toy yeah. coffins. The old man is on the other line, and he apologizes to Hellboy and starts rattling off about Mary. What they did to you, what they made you into, not a vampire, something else. And we get this panel of just a little Mary screaming. The man says, now Mary has to be locked away down there and fed. I'm sorry. He hangs up on Hellboy, and Hellboy just leaves the phone off the hook walking down the stairs. Well, this just gets better and better. Hellboy encounters Mary in her bed... And she sings nursery rhymes. First, she sings Sing a Song of Sixpence, a well-known English nursery rhyme, perhaps originating in the 18th century. Many interpretations have been placed on this rhyme. It is known that a 16th century amusement was to place live birds in a pie as a form of entrament. Terrible. An Italian cookbook from 1549 contains such a recipe to make pies so that birds may be alive in them and fly out when it is when it is cut up. Really horrible. And this was referred to in a cookbook of 1725 by John Knott. So that, yeah, all these English nursery rhymes are like, ter- they all have like terrible fucked things up. attached to them. Just fucked up stuff. What they're, the they're, fuck are y'all thinking? Yeah, I just... Then Mary sings Oranges and Lemons, a traditional English nursery rhyme, folk song, and singing game, which refers to the bells of several churches, all within or close to the city of London. Various theories have been advanced to account for the rhyme, including that it deals with child sacrifice, it describes public executions, and it describes Henry VIII's marital difficulties. Marital difficulties? He murdered all of his wives. Yeah, and no, it's also... Some of them, they got divorced, but yeah, no. <laughs> difficulties is not yeah. the right And it was word. also like a game where like kids, like they would have their arms and the kids would be passing through two of them and then they would put it down like, here's the chopper to chop off your head. Or oh, whatever. kind of like the... Um, kind of like London, London Bridges. Bridge. London Bridges, yeah, yeah. kind of like London that. Bridge, singular, is falling down. London Bridge is... Ah, yeah, it's not London I'm lear- Bridges. I'm learning something. <laughs> it sounds like you have quite a beef with that. No, I just 
No, I, I just feel like I like... one that is misheard very often. I, I, I just slap myself on the face because I'm all like, <laughs> 40 years doing that wrong. <laughs> uh. So as she's singing Oranges and Lemons and she's getting to the chop part, I like how Hellboy's like, oh, I think I know this one. Here and comes then she, the chopper to chop off your head. And he's like, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> this is such a cool panel. Yeah. This um, depiction yeah. Of, of, of her is just amazing. There's no other. I mean, I I just love the angular momentum of yeah. it. It's very, it's 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 almost like um, you can see the effect as though if, if it were a movie, you would be right. able to see the visual effect that would be happening, like that very sharp smoke. It's just very yeah, yeah. interdimensional Blowy. kind of black smoke. It's just so cool. Yeah, you know. it's great. and Kind of got an ethereal, flowy it's quality. It's really cool, yeah. yeah. And we get also the old man is taking uh, Kate down to put her in, in the coffin next to the old vampire where he's still sleeping. Yeah, this is a weird... I didn't quite get that part. Like, this is a weird thing. Yeah, because I guess he's... He he knows that the old vampire is waiting for her. I guess, and so he just goes to like put her body down there. I don't know why don't he know. goes to go yeah, do that. It's very creepy, though. I guess Maybe for a creepy effect. Well, it's also his sister too, so sure. he might be like, "I'm going to go Laying put you in her your coffin, rest. yeah, or something." Uh-huh. He there's really a lot of love given to these picture frames too. I just want to point out they were so lovingly rendered that I wouldn't be surprised if he spent a fair amount of time painting these these little frames. Yeah, and it's, they're shown several times. Yeah, and the middle one is little Mary. She's sitting there in her white dress, and she's got a cat with her. And while we see the picture frames, here she's singing Mary, Mary, Quite Contrary. It's another popular English nursery rhyme. The rhyme has been seen as having religious and historical significance, but its origins and meanings are disputed. It is thought to be a reference to Mary, Mother of Jesus in Catholicism, Mary, Queen of Scots, or Mary, One of England. My uh, my parents used to sing that one to my sister all the time. My uh, sister, yeah, your sister uh, is named Mary, also. Yeah. So I very familiar with just the oh, the very first part, you know, because it always stopped at Pretty Maze all in a row. Yeah, yeah. Hellboy gets thrown around by um, Mary in her hag form, and she sings for want of a nail. And this is a proverb having numerous variations over centuries. Reminding that seemingly unimportant acts or omissions can have grave and unforeseen consequences. The proverb is found in a number of forms beginning as early as the 13th century. Mm. And so it's kind of like, um, it's talking about a horseshoe. So a horseshoe was missing a nail. So for want of a nail, they lost the shoe. For want of a shoe, then the horse was lost. Then the rider doesn't have a horse. Yeah. And then, you know, so. If you don't take care of small things, it turns into something big. Right. So the rider ends up dying all for the want of a nail because the the horseshoe was missing a nail. And she chokes Hellboy as she gets to the last part. And that's another really great panel. Yeah. I like that a lot. I'm going to say when it gets to this point, she kind of looks like the Crypt Keeper, you know, was uh, doing workouts. Right. Oh, yeah. Got got her guns going. Yeah, Yeah, for real. Outside the house, Ted smokes a cigarette and waves when he sees a car pull up. These guys are BPRD agents, and Ted is surprised that there's only two of them. (laughs) You said it was just one, and Hellboy shot it, but she flew off, right? And there's another car. Oh, yeah, there is another car. Good job, Aubrey. Well, if he didn't kill it right off, I'm sure it's dead now, one of the agents says. And the agent with glasses, he says, Hellboy, I've backed him up a dozen times, and and this is the first chance I've had to get out of the car. He's a player, all right, Ted says. 
and the agent asks how Ted knows Hellboy, and he explains they met in a pub the night before last. He asks if I'd help him out, that being vampire bait, he'd square my bill. <laughs> what, what would you do if you ran into Hellboy at a... Hell yeah, at a bar, sure. and he's like, "Hey, you know what? I'll, I'll get you know, your tab. I'll get your tab if you come. Come on an adventure, <laughs> sure, yeah, man. I'll go on an adventure with you." The agents and Ted follow the trail of blood to the house, and Hellboy continues to get thrown around. Now Mary sings, "Who killed Cock Robin?" An English nursery rhyme, which has been much used as a murder archetype in world culture. Although the song was not recorded until the mid-18th century, there is some evidence that it is much older. The death of a robin by an arrow is depicted in a 15th century stained glass window at Buckland Rectory. And the rhyme is similar to the story Philip Sparrow, written by John Skelton about 1508. As Mary sings this one, Hellboy continues to get pummeled and the man watches as the old vampire calls out to his dead partner and arises. And I like how when the old vampire gets up, like, we just see his hands, and then he's standing up. Like, that seems like a very vampire thing. Like, he just kind of yeah, that is there. Movement, yeah. yeah. Master, forgive me, the old man says to the vampire as he views his dead bride. And the vampire's eyes go red. Outside, Ted thinks he hears something and screams out, bloody hell, as a vampire emerges from the ground beneath him followed by many more. And I love the vampires coming out of the ground and just all the motion. I'll talk about it a little bit more at the end, but Hampton had his monthly dinner crew pose for a lot of these. So he would actually That's have his awesome. friends, have his friends like do all these poses, these poses and, and he would take pictures and would then collect he would, them. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. awesome. I like this, uh, this little throwaway line here. Back to the church, good call, because there's never dead guys in church. Right. <laughs> yeah, because they go back to the church, and then all these other vampires are coming out of the it church just, grounds also. It yeah. just reminds me of some of my favorite, you know, it's that grim, dark cop humor of, yeah. like, we're facing yeah. sudden death, but we still have this fairy. So it's, it just reminds me of, like, Die Hard when he's in the vent, and he's like, come out to the coast, we'll have a few yeah, laughs, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. And Hampton does a good job of just showing how fucking outnumbered they are. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. There are so many vampires for the three of these guys. Hellboy fights Mary saying, hold still, you horrible thing. And I think he called the Baba Yaga a horrible thing yeah. also. He says that sometimes. She's gonna, and she's... he tries to stake her through, but she's totally unaffected by yeah. it. Well, speaking of Die Hard, the one rhyme that she's doing now, as I was going into Insane Ives, I met a, I met a man with a seven wives. Yeah. That was in, like, Die Hard 3. Was it really? Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> wow. So I know the answer to that riddle. <laughs> Is As it a, just one? Yeah. Yeah. I was just about to talk about that. As I was going to St. Ives as a traditional English-language nursery rhyme in the form of riddle. All potential answers to this riddle are based on its ambiguity, because the riddle only tells us the group has met on the journey to St. Ives, but gives no further information about its intentions, only those of the narrator. If the group that the narrator meets is assumed not to be traveling to St. Ives, the answer could only be one person is going, the narrator. This is the most common assumption, as the purpose of the riddle was most likely to trick the listener into making long-winded calculations, only to be surprised by the simplicity of the answer. If one disregards the trick answer and assumes the narrator overtook the group as they were also traveling to St. Ives, the most common mathematical answer is 2,802. One man, seven wives... 49 sacks, 343 casts, and 2,401 kits, plus the narrator. <laughs> there you go. Where did you get Where did you get that? Is that Wikipedia? Yeah. Okay. 
I still say the answer is one. It's one, <laughs> yeah. Because I was, I was going to Santa Eyes. Yeah, yeah. And then like, uh, um, there's so many riddles that have that same thing going on. Well, yeah. That I love, but all the other shit is just thrown in there to fuck you up. <laughs> just listen to the first line of the riddle. Right. Well, it is even funny in the in the Die Hard movie, and they're like, um, Bruce Willis is like, well, where are the other guys going? And Samuel Dex is like, standing on the fucking platform for all I know. <laughs> oh, man. We, you know, we just watch all the Die Hard movies, and I don't remember that. I don't remember that. I actually, that's the whole thing is that I, I've seen Die Hard, I don't know how many times, like a million times. <laughs> and I had never watched any of the other Die Hards. Oh, okay. And uh. so I'd never seen them. And so one day I was like, I guess they're worth watching. And we, we would throw them on, and I would kind of just like, start doing other stuff and i just don't really remember a whole lot about them but i, I could probably tell you every single line of the original time right. movie well i say one in three are definitely my favorites and the rest are they good? just i don't care for they're not that good okay especially after three. Oh. Huh. anyway this isn't die hard book club <laughs> <laughs> um i like this scene as hellboy is fighting the hag and he says um Listen, lady, I can do this all goddamn. And then she just grabs him by the face. But, like, as they're fighting, it just looks really great. Yeah. And then he finally gets one in on her. And he's like, yeah, all right, that's more like it. And then he just booms her through there. and we Right get hand right, of boom. Right hand of doom boom number 18. I want to say about this page really quick. In the sketchbook, what's really interesting is Mike Mignola wanted it to be paced exactly like this. And he drew it. He sketched out a rough sketch okay. of this page because wow. he wanted it the to look it, like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Did he sketch out the cat scene too? Because um, the timing is very specific. The way that the cat is walking yeah. through the scene is very specific. Yeah. And so as Hellboy gets through the other side of the wall, he's puzzled and he sees this cat and it talks to him. It's what she wanted, you know, someone to break down that door. It's what she wanted all along. Now she's. And the cat turns into like this mummified, like it's it's been dead for a long time. Didn't we see her holding the dead mummified cat before she turned into her? Uh, I don't know self? what's going on here. It seems to be some sort of residual yeah. magic or yeah. something. Back with the vampire, um, the vampire grabs the old man. What's happened here? Speak. And the candle goes out, and um, they see Mary. Back in her child form, she sings Ding Dong Bell or Ding Dong Dell, is a, which is a popular English language nursery rhyme. The earliest version to resemble the modern one is from Mother Goose's Melody, published in London around 1765. And additional lines were added later to make it more acceptable for children with the survival of the cat. The vampire shouts at Mary, Creature, you dare set foot here? Back to your stinking hole. And then she turns into her giant hag form. And it looks really great here, and the vampire still yells at her, Hag, turn tail and run. But she just grabs his full body and her giant hag he's hand. He's still blustering this whole time. He's like, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I think it's funny that he's like, you hear, you will not stand. And then he's just like. Lay hands on me, I won't have it. Exactly. Very, and, yeah. and, and I love this page, too. I just love how she literally squeezes his head off. Gross. And his expression, as all that's just happening, is just very... Uh, it's very affecting to me, but I also love this panel as Ted and all these guys are getting outnumbered, and there he's like, "Ah, we're dead, we're dead." Where he's like, "Or oh, well, then I guess we're not." It's a great moment to transition back to the, yeah. B, the B plot there. Yeah, 
and uh, Ted is just using his gun as a club because he's out of bullets in, in that moment. I really like how desperate they are. After the hag kills the old vampire, all the vampires that are attacking the BPRD agents and Ted, they just fall to the ground. And we've seen that trope used so many different times. Yeah. Of you take out the head guy and all the little minions just sort of stop and fall over. And that's just a very easy way to get yourself out of this this situation you've written yourself into kind little of a thing. Deus Ex Machina going on the, right Yeah, there. a little bit, yeah. I was going to say, it did remind me of uh, The Lost Boys where they had, you kill the head vampire, all the other vampires right. will turn back to normal. <laughs> or like we saw in the... the uh, was it an Avengers movie that that happened? Oh, it ha- yeah. Oh, I at mean, the uh, end of the first Avengers, yeah. they took out the uh, the thing and all the all the little dropped. are they scrolls or what are they? Chitauri, there you Chitauri go. And... Which were created for the Ultimate Universe to take place of the scrolls. Yeah, there you go. But you <laughs> hey, see this it... is a Marvel book club over here. Yeah. I'm just kidding. I'm but just it's kidding. just something you see in a lot of different stories and a lot of different movies and yeah so yeah. it's just kind of a good way to be like okay now the movie's ending yeah <laughs> like, uh, we're not gonna fight these armies for you're saved decades and decades like they're all gone now it's just a nice little off switch yeah yeah it's a cool well it's a short story it's got it that's the key word we're not gonna yeah. be fighting vampires for centuries now we see the vampire's head burn away hellboy talks to mary back in her girl form mary it's over over yes over I had no desire to be bad, to do bad things, but it came out on me from all the bad things done to me. And Mary, um, she opens her mouth and this black mass kind of just comes out and it fills the entire frame and it travels through the floor. Mary turns to Hellboy. Who are you? I don't know you. And then she just crumbles, leaving Hellboy standing on his own. And I just really love this last panel. The way that that looks like a Mignola Hellboy sure. to me. Yeah. And yeah. it just like, I don't know, there's something about this last panel that I really like as Hellboy's just standing there. Yeah, this artist really does a great job of, it's not even so much an homage, he just sort of folds that design into his style. Right. And you get, obviously this style is very different from Mike Mignola's style, but you get the sense of it just from certain shapes that he'll yeah put in there and it's just it really works it's, it's yeah. great yeah i like it. it it definitely it definitely feels like it fits in yeah, this world completely absolutely. it's just nothing you, jarring no yeah you get yeah. shades of mignola you get those little yeah, yeah. moments where you're like oh my god outside ted screams bloody hell again as the black mass shoots out of the house into the sky and it's like screaming right yeah it's really <laughs> scary Back inside, Hellboy talks to the old man. You think she forgave me? I don't know, pal. What do you think? And then the man just dies. And I thought this was interesting. Like, Hellboy doesn't comfort him or he doesn't say, like, I'm sure she did or whatever. He's just like, I don't know. What do you think? That's not really his style. Yeah. yeah I was going to say, yeah, that's like another time where Hellboy's like, I don't know the answer. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I'm not going to, you know, sugarcoat it for you. Right, he's right. A, well, he's a sad kid. He's a sad boy. <laughs> And I just love Hellboy just sauntering out of the house, smoking a cigarette. He's like, Joe, Bob, <laughs> Ted, what took you guys so long? But that is such an awesome, he is such a badass right there. After they've been dealing with all these vampires outside and thinking they're going to die, he just comes out like nothing. This is another moment where I hear, what's his name's voice in my head? Yeah. Ron Perlman. Yeah, Rob, yeah Ron Perlman. I hear, it. I, I hear him, uh, what took you so long? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back at the Beehive Inn, Ted tells the patrons of their adventure 
as Hellboy and the agents drink. And I like that Hellboy's just at the bar by himself. He's not like hanging out with everybody and social. Maybe he's just getting another round, but it seems to me like he's just drinking over there by himself. They've all got Guinness, too. They're like hitting it hard. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Bob says to Joe, well, at least you got out of the car this time. Guess it'll be a long time before you hear me complaining oh. about that again, <laughs> Joe says. And we end with a picture of the child Mary with her cat. The end. Really interesting story. It's also interesting how Ted just looks like he's embellishing how important he was to the actual story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's all like, you know, and then I did this, and then uh, Hellboy helped. Well, right. I'm sure this is probably... The first time he's ever gone on an adventure of this kind, it's a right. very there's supernatural stuff. That's going how I on. would be. I yeah. would be like, "Holy shit! I was doing shit with vampires. Yeah. I was fighting vampires." I can't believe what happened to me, you know. And so Hellboy is just super used to it, so he's just like, "Time for a beer." And, you know, the guy's talking about like, "Ah, oh, normally I don't get out of the car." That's really. I just like those little vignettes into the VPN. Yeah, journey. it's very interesting. Some trivia for The Sleeping and the Dead. Mignola said he wanted to do a classic vampire story where the vampires wear black or white if they're girls. <laughs> Kill people and sleep in coffins. He had the idea on a mental shelf gathering dust. He originally planned to draw it himself, but was probably afraid of having to draw the little girl. Not my strong suit, Mignola says. I would disagree, but of course, artists are usually yeah. self-deprecating. Mignola says Hampton was the perfect artist to handle a tragic vampire woman dying on a couch and a doll-like girl monster sitting in a basement singing to her cat. I'm thankful he decided to draw it, otherwise it would still be gathering dust in my head. Like Aubrey said in the sketchbook, there's some good feedback from Hampton where he explains his whole process, which we already kind of talked about. All right. So that was a great episode. Two great stories today. And one thing I was I was talking to Danielle a little bit about earlier was we didn't have any Mignola art on this episode. What did you uh, think about that? Did you think about that at all? Oh, or? I completely thought of it. I was going to bring that up, too. It's just like two. <laughs> okay. Two stories, I guess, three, because he got two in the double right, feature. Right. right. So it no Mignola art yeah. and I was just like whoa that's the first time this has happened that, this yeah. is the first episode yeah, yeah where we have that happen we'll have some more and Mignola is, next uh, week episode 11 right yeah uh, okay. this one goes to 11 <laughs> <laughs> alright excellent so I loved our discussion today and I'm excited for what we're gonna we're gonna be wrapping up um, Hellboy short stories next week and oh, getting wow. ready to move on to another title so yeah next week will be our last Hellboy for a little while so um, I'm really excited to 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 get to that and um, jump into BPRD. Yeah, we're gonna do it. So excellent, excellent. Really excited. But next week we'll have more Hellboy short stories. Cool. And now Aubrey's gonna say all the things. So tell us your thoughts on the Devil Feature of Evil and the Sleeping of the Dead. What did you think about having no Mignola art this time around? Send us your uh, feedback at hellboybookclub at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Facebook at Hellboy Book Club Podcast and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Hellboy Book Club. On our next episode, we will be discussing The Bride of Hell, The Whittier Legacy, Buster Oakley Gets His Wish. So pull out your back issues trades omnibuses library editions etc 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 follow <laughs> along with us and join us next time on the hellboy book club you can check us out on uh, mignolaverse.com find the podcast at podbean and apple itunes or wherever you get your podcasts from thanks for listening everybody i'm john salinas i'm danielle and i'm aubrey loveless saying the one with the bird head oh. <laughs> <laughs>